Bibles together to Hebrews 8, 1 to 13 for today's scripture reading. I'll give you a moment to find these passages in your Bibles or apps. The ESV version of the text will be displayed on the screen. Again, that's Hebrews 8, 1 to 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and, I showed no and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. May God bless the reading of his word. Chris Chang will now preach on the topic of the new covenant, A Cut Above, continuing our sermon series, Jesus is Better, with part two, A Better Redemption. morning, Crossbridge. <clears throat> Before we start into our message this morning, I just wanted to take a moment to pray again. Um, our dear sister Julia Cho passed away yesterday, and so I wanted to spend some time praying for Jim and for Abby, Samuel, and Jeremiah. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our loving Father in heaven, Words cannot express the sorrow and grief we feel today, the loss that we feel this morning, the loss of someone who has been to us a friend, a Sunday school teacher, a confidant, a loving mother and wife. <clears throat> God, we thank you 
that our sister Julia is with you and that she is with you in your presence completely healed and whole before you. We thank you, God, that she is no longer suffering, but that she is in glory with you. And yet, Lord, we feel this loss so deeply. And so, Lord, we weep. God, we know that as you, our Lord Jesus Christ, wept at Lazarus' tomb, that you also weep with us, that you are with us. And so, Lord, I pray that your comforting hand would be upon our brother Jim, upon Abby, upon Samuel, upon Jeremiah. And Lord, as they grieve, we pray that you would bring comfort, as you are the God of all comfort, as you say in your scripture. And we pray that you would shower them with your comforting presence, Lord. We pray that as they grieve, you would surround them with your arms of love, that they would know that they do not grieve alone. And as deep as grief grips, Lord, we pray that we might grieve by faith with hope. The hope in knowing that Julia is glorified with you in heaven. And the hope that we will be reunited together one day in, in eternity, where you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, where you make everything new. But for now, Lord, we pray that you would weep with us. Weep with Jim, weep with Abby, Samuel, and Jeremiah. Remind them and us that your faithfulness and the light is still true when the darkness encroaches upon us. So God, comfort us with your steadfast love. In Jesus' name we pray. We're now in our third week of Advent, and I hope that this season of Advent and the weeks leading up to Christmas have been an opportunity for you to, you to be able to spend some time in reflection, spend some time in meditation, in thinking upon what it means for us to wait upon the Lord. But unfortunately, I also know that during this season, we're often distracted by so much, distracted by media, uh, when the world around us seems to be shopping, as we hear messages about how we ought to be buying the latest, greatest new thing to replace what's old. I, I've seen advertisements for the new iPhone 13 Pro Max talking about how it has the most advanced pro camera system ever, a super retina XDR display with ProMotion, an A15 bionic chip. I have no idea what any of this stuff means, and I worked in tech. Or we should get the new Nintendo OLED Switch with its you know, crisp 7-inch screen, larger, and a kickstand that actually works. Or, you know, this is the December to remember, when we should be looking to get a new Lexus, which honestly kind of looks like last year's Lexus. We hear all these things about how we should buy this new stuff which will meet our needs, which will fill you know, our des the desires and, and needs of our heart. And yet when we look at these things, in the end, they're, they're pretty similar to what came before them. There's not that much different. There's a few more bells and whistles. But honestly, 
it's not that hard to live with what came before. You know, we can live with an iPhone 12. We can live with the old Nintendo Switch, the previous year's Lexus, and they're, they're honestly as good, almost as good, as what's being advertised to us today. And yet sometimes, sometimes there are new inventions, new innovations that present a huge paradigm shift over what came before. For example, in the 20th century, commercial air travel became much more accessible to most people. And so people could fly in a day what used to take weeks or months by boat or by train. This completely transformed trade. This completely transformed the way in which we did business with one another. It completely transformed the way in which we spend vacation. Or consider the internet. In my lifetime, the internet has transformed the way in which we convey information from point A to point B. The internet represents a huge efficiency improvement over print media, over the postal service. I mean, there's still a place for those things, but when it comes to getting information around the globe and seeing what's going on or communicating with friends, the internet has vastly improved the way in which we communicate. Or the, or, or the smartphone. The iPhone 13 might not be a huge improvement over the iPhone 12, but the mobile phone, the smartphone, has completely changed the way in which we live. I remember when we'd have to make plans ahead of time with friends about where we would meet, when we would meet, how we would meet. And once we walked out that door, we, you know, the, the, the assumption was everyone would stick to the plan. If someone didn't, it, it presented a huge challenge. Now, when we walk out that door, we make our plans on the fly. That's completely changed the way in which we interact with one another, the way in which we, we, we grow together in, in our relationships. There are changes that are huge paradigm shifts to the way in which we live our lives. And I'm guessing that it'd be pretty hard for us to go back to the old ways when it comes to some of these paradigm shifts. Today in our passage in Hebrews chapter 8, the author is talking about another one of these type changes. He's comparing the old covenant under Moses with the new covenant under Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is better because the covenant that Jesus mediates is better than the covenant that Moses mediated. That the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant isn't just some incremental change. It's not just the addition of a kickstand on the switch. The New Covenant represents an entirely new paradigm. Something so different, so new, that it makes the old pale in comparison. What we find in our text in Hebrews this morning is that the New Covenant is a cut above the rest. But before we talk about what the Old Covenant and New Covenant is, I think we need to ask the question first, what is a covenant? It's not a word that we use very often. And so, Gordon Hugenberger, who used to be the pastor at Park Street, has defined covenant as an elected as opposed to natural relationship of obligation under divine sanction. That's a lot of words. So let's break that down a little bit. What does that mean? It's an elected relationship. 
What that means, it's, 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 it's not a relationship that comes by blood. It's not like your relationship with your father or with your sister or with your sons. It's, an elect, it's a relationship that you choose to enter into. It's a relationship of obligation. There are stipulations associated with the covenant. So, for example, those stipulations can be between equals, like during marriage, when husband and wife have the obligation towards one another of exclusive faithfulness and love. Or it could be an obligation between unequals, like back in the ancient days when a powerful king might make a covenant with a lower city, you know, asking tribute from them in return for protection from other possible powers that might want to invade them. And lastly, a covenant is under divine sanction. A covenant is made under the authority and under the policing of God. So that when one party breaks a covenant, they're not just incurring the wrath of the other party. Breaking a covenant incurs the judgment and incurs the wrath of God. Now, in our culture, we're, we're pretty familiar with the idea of contracts. And there are a lot of similarities between contracts and covenants. Both contracts and covenants uh, create a set of stipulations that govern the relationship between two different parties. But there are some differences as well. Like we just said, uh, covenants are under divine sanction, which means that when one party breaks a covenant, it's under the authority of God. God is the one who polices it, whereas contracts in our society um, are policed, are enforced by uh, civil authorities, are enforced by the courts, are enforced by the legal system. But another difference between contracts and covenants is that with contracts, contracts tend to be able to be amended. Contracts also are limited in the time in which they're enforced, because when the stipulations of the contract are over, the contract is done. Covenants, on the other hand, last for the lifetime of those parties that are involved in the covenants. So, for example, with the contract, if I, if I sign a contract with a, 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 reno, a contractor, general contractor to renovate my kitchen, that contract is only in force for as long as it takes the contractor to do the work on the kitchen and for me to pay him. Or, for, or Tom Brady's last contract with the Patriots was for one year and $23 million. And so that contract was in force only as long as for the one season that Tom Brady played for the Patriots and for as long as it took for the Patriots to pay, to pay him that $23 million. Once that contract ended, unfortunately, he could go wherever he wanted to, uh, to the warmer beaches of Tampa Bay. Now, covenants, on the other hand, are permanent. And we see this in the biblical language used to describe covenant. In our English translations, we see in, in Genesis and the Old Testament um, how God would make covenants with his people. Like in Genesis 15 where it says, God made a covenant with Abraham. But in Hebrew, the word is actually cut. God cut a covenant with Abraham. People would cut covenants with one another. Because you see, Covenants were meant to be permanent, and so they were cut into materials like stone, like silver, 
different metals. They were cut into things permanent because they were intended to show that they lasted. When God made his covenant with Moses, he could have written the Ten Commandments on papyrus. But instead, God cut the covenant onto stone tablets. He cut the Ten Commandments into two stone tablets. Covenants were cut. You can rip up paper papyruses. You can rip up contracts. You can't really rip a stone tablet. Covenants had a permanent nature to them. And so, what exactly did the covenant that God gave to Moses look like? Well, ancient Near Eastern covenants had a certain structure that tended to, 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 to be there for all covenants. And we see this structure also in the covenant between God and Israel. Covenants usually started with a preamble or a prologue. And we see this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is a pretty remarkable statement because what it says is even before God made his covenant with Israel, God already delivered Israel from Egypt. God already, out of his grace, took Israel from bondage and delivered them to freedom. Out of his grace and mercy, God redeemed Israel from Egypt. And this wasn't because Israel deserved it. It wasn't because Israel was mighty or, or had something going for them that caused God to want to deliver them. Because we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says, It was not because you were more in number than, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. The Mosaic covenant was also a covenant of grace. When God approached Israel and redeemed them and set up the covenant, that also was an act of grace. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament God as a God who is vengeful, a God of stipulations, the God of law, and the God who would punish if people didn't break the law. But the truth is, God has always been a God of grace. God has always been a God of mercy. And even in this Mosaic covenant, we see how God is gracious. The next part of ancient Near Eastern covenants were stipulations. And so after God declares who he is and what he did in redeeming Israel out of Egypt, come the Ten Commandments and come a few chapters of further laws and further stipulations. And then in chapter, at the end of chapter 23, we see blessings and curses. What happens if, people, if Israel keeps the covenant? What happens if the parties to the covenant don't keep the covenant. And so in Exodus chapter 23, we see that as long as Israel keeps those stipulations, keeps the law, God promises Israel to be an enemy to their enemies and an adversary to their adversaries, that his blessing would be on their food and water, that God would take away sickness from among them and give them a full lifespan. And then lastly, covenants were often... Uh, consummated with a blood ritual, which we see in Exodus chapter 24, where they sacrifice an animal, and then Moses sprinkles blood over all of the Israelites. The taking of life and the use of blood not only initiated the covenant, but also indicated the seriousness of the covenant. The blood showed how serious entering into this covenant meant, and it also showed the severity of the consequences if a party chose not to keep the covenant. 
And so God delivered Israel from Egypt, from slavery, and God instituted this covenant, <clears throat> this Mosaic covenant, which also was an act of grace. But why did God have to institute the covenant? I mean, after all, didn't he already deliver them from slavery? Didn't he already, he already bring Israel to be his people? Why did God have to create this covenant for the people of Israel? And we see this, we see this in what follows in the Exodus, because God redeeming Israel from slavery was just one part of the book of Exodus. The second half of Exodus is spent describing you know, the design of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. Because you see, God intended to redeem Israel for himself, and God intended to dwell with his people. Uh, Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 through 46 it can be seen a, as almost like a theme verse to the book of Exodus, where God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The word tabernacle in Hebrew actually literally means place of dwelling or dwelling place. God redeemed Israel from slavery so that he, they might be his people, so that he might be their God, and so that he might dwell with his people. But there's a problem here. Because God is the holy, holy, holy God. And Israel is not. And so what happens when an unholy people, when a sinful people comes into the presence of God? We see this throughout the Bible, what happens. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets a vision of God seated on his throne and the train of his robe filling the temple, how does Isaiah respond? Isaiah says, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, when Isaiah saw the presence of God, Isaiah felt and knew that he was doomed because how could he, an unclean man, stand before the holy, holy, holy God? Deuteronomy chapter 4 describes God as a consuming fire because the unrighteous, those who cannot meet up to God's glory, which none of us can, those who cannot, those who are, are, are sinful, those who don't meet up to God's standard of righteousness, when in the presence of God, are swept away like a consuming fire. And we, this becomes much more visceral to us in, in this day and age because we see the wildfires in California that sweep through towns, that this destroy. And in the presence of a holy God, we also are swept away, destroyed like a consuming fire. I remember when I was a kid, I watched the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this movie gave me nightmares because at the end of the movie, the Nazis who have found the Ark of the Covenant open it up. And what happens? In the presence of a holy, holy God, the Nazis are destroyed. They literally melt before the presence of God. Now, Hollywood, Indiana Jones isn't meant to be some kind of theological uh, paragon of, of what it means because, you know, 
somehow Indiana Jones and Miriam survive by closing their eyes. And I don't think closing your eyes would enable you to survive in the presence of God as sinful people. But the point is this. God is a holy, holy God. And so God gave the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as an act of grace to Israel so that God could dwell with them. The Mosaic covenant was also a covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant was given to the people of Israel as the means by which the holy, holy God might be their God, the means by which they might be God's people, the means by which God might dwell with his people. And so we see that this law that God gave to Moses, this covenant, was an act of grace. And so then why was a new covenant necessary? Why does Hebrew chapter 8 talk about how the, old, the new covenant was so much better than the old covenant and makes the old covenant obsolete? Well, the answer is, it can be found in verse 5 of our chapter for today. In verse 5 we read, talking about um, the priests of the old covenant, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The Mosaic covenant was just a copy and shadow and therefore was insufficient. Because the tabernacle wasn't the true dwelling place of God. The tabernacle was only a copy and shadow of the heavenly things where God truly resides. God gave careful instructions to Moses because the tabernacle was intended to model the the actual dwelling place of God. And so these instructions were very detailed to, to create as accurate of a model as possible. Here's a picture of what uh, the tabernacle looked like. And there's some theologians that kind of uh, see this as a, as a model, perhaps, of the cosmos, where you have the outer courtyard. The outer courtyard was where Israel was, all people of Israel were able to walk in. And they could walk in and bring their meeting, uh, bring, sorry, bring their sacrifices. And the sacrifices were all offered on the altar. But then you had the holy place. The holy place was inside the actual tent. And the holy place could only be accessed by priests and only after they had purified themselves. The average Israelite could not enter into the holy place. And then you have the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of Covenant covenant was. And the Holy of Holies was the copy and shadow where God dwelt. And the glory cloud, you know, resided in the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was so holy that only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only once a year after offering sacrifices after going through different purification rituals, only once a year could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies to mediate for Israel, between Israel and God. And the point of all this is that God is a holy God. And there needed to be this separation 
between God and Israel because of how holy God is in his perfection and how broken and how sinful and how unrighteous and how unworthy we are and how unworthy Israel was as his people. And so the Mosaic Covenant was limited both in the means by which Israel could have access to God's presence and also limited in the amount of separation that existed between God and Israel. Because you see, the tabernacle was only a copy and shadow of what it looked like back in Genesis when God dwelled with Adam and Eve. The tabernacle is only a copy and shadow of what it looks like in Revelation 21 and 22 when God dwells with his people in eternity. I remember growing up playing various car racing video games. Uh, you know, way back when on old Atari playing pole position and then playing Gran Turismo or the Need for Speed. And, you know, car racing games are fun. You, 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 there's a lot of enjoyment in trying to go as fast as you can on that screen. But no amount of car racing games prepared me for the time in which I drove a Porsche Macan on the Autobahn in Germany. I was working for Bose and we needed to, to evaluate our audio systems under different driving conditions, under different noise conditions. And so I was the one driving this Porsche on the Autobahn. And when you're going 110, 120 miles per hour, it's really real. Driving this real car, driving this real crossover SUV, going by real cars on a real road with real turns, with real, to me, it felt like obstacles, and my hands were gripped tightly because everything was just coming up so quickly. Video games were just a copy and shadow of what it was like to actually drive that car. It's like how the pic a picture of the Grand Canyon is just a copy and shadow of actually seeing the Grand Canyon in person. It, the Grand Canyon, which is a mile deep, 277 miles long, 18 miles wide from north rim to south rim. A picture is just a copy and shadow. Or the Lego model of the Empire State Building standing 21 inches high is just a copy and shadow of the actual Grand, uh, Empire State Building standing 1,454 feet high. Or how even today, Remote worship is just a copy and shadow of what it's like to worship together in person. And that is just a copy and shadow of what it will be like in eternity when we were together with people from every tribe, tongue, and, and nation worshiping God together. Because in the end, the Mosaic Covenant was only a copy and shadow and therefore insufficient. It was insufficient because it didn't change the hearts of people. We talked previously, uh, last time I was up here, we talked about how Israel was stiff-necked, how Israel was like a stiff-necked donkey, moving along, refusing, you know, despite the owner wanting to turn the donkey away from its path towards destruction, Israel refusing to turn their necks. Their necks were stiffed, you know, intent on stubbornly wanting to go towards their destruction. The Mosaic Covenant couldn't change their hearts. In the second half of our passage, Jeremiah, uh, sorry, Hebrews 8 quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet who had the unique perspective 
of prophesying and warning Israel to turn back from their wickedness, to turn towards the Lord and remain faithful to the covenant, lest they be destroyed. And also seeing the destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was present in 586 BC when Jerusalem was wiped out, was captured by the Babylonian Empire. Because Israel could not keep the stipulations of the Old Covenant. Israel was still stiff-necked. The Old Covenant couldn't change their hearts. And this presents a problem because God had made promises to Abraham back in Genesis, unconditional promises that ultimately went unfulfilled under Mosaic Covenant when Israel and Judah were conquered by Assyria and Babylon. God had made these unconditional promises to Abraham of descendants, of being made into a great nation, of land, of being a blessing to the nations, of his presence himself being with Abraham and his descendants. And so this was the, so the Mosaic Covenant ended up being a problem because was God's unconditional promises to Abraham ultimately at risk because of the unfaithfulness of Israel? Well, of course the answer is no, because God is sovereign. And we see in Hebrews chapter 8 that the new covenant is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. That the new covenant is the actual driving of Porsche on the Autobahn. That the new covenant is the actual Grand Canyon, the actual Empire State Building. That the new covenant is the ultimate fulfillment which fulfills these promises. Because what we see in the new covenant is that the blood of Christ not only covers over, not only uh, covers over our sins and gives us forgiveness of sins, the blood of Christ is also the means by which our hearts are transformed. Verse 10 of our passage, quoting Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The, the new, under the new covenant, Christ's death not only covers over our sins, but it also enables us to keep those stipulations of the covenant, enables us to be righteous so that we can be whole in the presence of a holy, holy God. It's like the old covenant is like an interest-only mortgage where every payment you make doesn't really put a dent into the principle. The new covenant is like paying for your house in cash. Or the old covenant is like a sump pump trying to you know, get the water out of your basement. And the new covenant is actually sealing your basement in its entirety so that water can't get in. Or the old covenant is like mowing your lawn every two weeks. And the new covenant is like replacing your lawn with astroturf. Now, I know that probably doesn't appeal to some of you, but the point of this is that under the new covenant, we can be in the presence of God because we are transformed. That the new covenant doesn't just cover over uh, little bit by little and, and with patchwork. The new covenant transforms our hearts. And we see in, in verse 11, verse 11 goes on, quoting Jeremiah, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember 
their sins no more. Under the Old Covenant, the mediator of the Old Covenant, the high priest, could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. In the New Covenant, our mediator, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, constantly seated there. In the Old Covenant, Israel only met with God once a year. In the New Covenant, we meet with God through our perfect mediator, constantly, always, so that we can actually know God, know the Lord, from the least of us to the greatest of us. It's like, the Old Covenant is like if I was trying to learn Japanese once a year by watching once a year a YouTube video. And the New Covenant is, God willing, us actually going to Japan and being immersed in the culture, actually being able to learn Japanese by being there in person constantly. Because you see, we have a mediator who is there at the throne of God, mediating for us, so that we can actually know God in the morning, know God at noon, know God in the evening, each and every day. Because our perfect mediator on the cross is at the right hand of the Lord of hosts, and God the Holy Spirit dwells in us to transform our hearts so that we can be in the presence of God, so that we can, God, God can dwell in us, and so that God can transform us. And in this way, the new covenant fulfills the old covenant. The new covenant fulfills the promises given to Abraham. The new covenant is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. All the ceremonial law of the old covenant was fulfilled on the cross. And all the moral law of the old covenant has been fulfilled by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, transforming our hearts, sanctifying us, making us more holy. The new covenant is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. And so the new covenant is a cut above the rest. But I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Based on my actions, based on the way in my attitudes, my selfishness, my pride, it doesn't often feel like I have God's law written onto my heart. And I know that there are circumstances that happen, pandemic, tragedy, in which God feels very much far away when I don't feel like I know God. And yet, the new covenant reminds us that in this period that we're in of already but not yet, the new covenant reminds us that all this has already happened to us, even as we're waiting for the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate consummation of that in eternity. And so during this period of Advent, as we reflect, let's reflect on what it means to wait on the Lord. Let's reflect on this new covenant that we have, this new covenant which calls us to faithfulness to the person of Christ. Even as we're in the midst of pandemic, even as we're in the midst of temptations that sometimes cause our head to turn a little, even as we're in the midst of tragedy, of sorrow, this season of Advent reminds us that we're called to faithfulness to Christ.
that we're called to wait on God. That we're called to cling closely to those promises of God which are sure. Those promises which he gave to Abraham. Those promises that he continues to give us in Christ. Those promises which he will fulfill in eternity one day. In that picture where we are before the throne of God. Where God dwells with us in completion just as he did back in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Let us cling to those promises for the new covenant is a cut above the rest. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you that you have given us Christ, that in your graciousness and mercy you have shown us the goodness of your grace, the goodness of your mercy, and covering over our sins and taking away our sin and forgiving us. And not just that, Lord, but that you dwell in us and that you are making us new. That we can be in the presence of a holy, holy God because of what you have done by your grace in Christ. And so, Lord, in all circumstances, help us to cling to those promises. Help us to cling to that hope that even as we suffer, even as we grieve, we know that you are sovereign, that you love us, that you are with, with us, that you dwell with us. In Jesus' name we pray.